Today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show, we're going to dive deep into the D&D Summit that happened on the 3rd of April, last Monday of 2023. We have just a few little news items, and then we're going to dive deep into the topic. What did we learn? What can help fellow DMs? And what they can do to run a better D&D Summit next time. That's all today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things D&D. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Life Flourish. Patrons get access to a dedicated Discord channel, the monthly Q&A, and lots of other things. An example of the kinds of things that patrons get is the Lazy RPG Talk Show database. I have been doing this show for a number of years now. Every show, I have a whole bunch of different segments on that show, and you can actually search this database for any one of the 1,172 segments of those shows. So for example, if you want to learn about NPCs, what have I said about NPCs? You can type in NPCs and it shows you the 21 times I've talked about NPCs, dealing with tagalong NPCs, too many NPCs as upward beats in a dungeon crawl, modifying NPCs, anything about NPCs you can find there. Combat, you can type in combat and see 22 different entries where I've talked about long range combat. These are all coming from patron questions that I've answered on the show. So it's a really great way to like dive into specific topics instead of having to go through a bunch of talk shows to find them. This is an exclusive feature for patrons of Sly Flourish to help patrons of Sly Flourish find questions that I've answered before for the Patreon Q&A. It's just one of many different exclusive features you get by becoming a patron of Sly Flourish. You can become a patron by going down in the show notes below. There's a link down there in the show notes below. And to the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your support. So we are going to be primarily talking about the D&D Summit. This is going to be a ruthlessly efficient show today. I'm confident that we are not going to waste a lot of time because we have a lot of stuff to talk about. But there was a lot of interesting news that all seemed to happen this Friday that I said, well, that's I know I wanted to focus on the summit, but I really need to talk about that. So we're going to talk about that. Number one, Black Flag, the Kobold Press book, the Kobold Press version of 5e, the core books of 5e for for, the Kobold Press is doing for Black Flag has a name, and that name is Tales of the Valiant. Tales of the Valiant is going to be a Kickstarter coming out in May. It is going to be two books, a player's guide and a monster book. The player's guide will have enough information that DMs can run the game and the monster book. They're not going to be doing a DMG as one of the three books. It's going to be two books, player's guide and monster, monster vault. Though that Kickstarter for that will be coming out in May of 2023, and that is now officially called Tales of the Valiant. Pretty cool name. Second was the release of the first Orc public draft. Orc is a new open gaming license that was, I believe, funded by Python but developed in the open with many different companies. A bunch of different companies signed on to it. I signed up to, you know, I signed on to say, yeah, I'm definitely interested in an open license like this. I think they had like 1,200 companies that all said, yeah, we'll sign up, which basically means we're interested. But the first draft of it came out. You can find it. So Paizo has it on their website, but the links to the document itself exist in a bunch of different places. In fact, they, they sent it, or they're going to send it to the Library of Congress so that they actually have a version of it that you can link to that's held by the U.S government to make sure that no one company has control over it. It is an open license developed in the open uh, that isn't under the control of any one company to do basically what the OGL did. My big question always comes to, well, why, why this and why not Creative Commons? They mention it in the, there's a big discussion of it, the, the, like the, basically the frequently asked questions on like how it works. And I think the bottom one is why not Creative Commons? And they basically say it's because we wanted to have a license that you can include in the beginning of 
of a core book that says this stuff in the core book is stuff that is released under the license that other people can use. And this stuff is our protected content that you cannot. And it's harder to do that with Creative Commons than it is to do with this. Maybe. Creative Commons is so widely used, it's really hard. And I'm a fan of Creative Commons. My biggest question with this, and we'll probably talk more about it. My biggest questions, and I didn't read the license because I'm like, I'm not a lawyer. I'll let the lawyers talk about it. I know lawyers are digging into it. We'll figure out if it's good. And lots of people are going to have questions on it. So I'm not really that worried. My biggest thing is like, are we basically going to have three different licenses? And how does it work when products want to use material from different sources that all have different licenses? And as far as I can tell, having talked to one, one lawyer unofficially where we're just having conversations about it. And he said, basically, yeah, you're going to have to include all three licenses. Like you're going to have like a set of back pages that say, these are the things that we took from these groups that use this license and this from this other license and this from this other license. And they're all licensed here. And then this is how we're releasing our parts of it. Because one trick is like, if you can't take stuff that was released under ORC and then release it under a Creative Commons license because you are downgrading the license. You, you know, you, it's, it's, you have to like release your stuff under the same license that it was under. It's going to be very confusing. We'll see how it all works out. But we're in a much better state to even have a, something like this. So that was interesting. That's come out. And I don't think, and it's still in a, in, a, in a draft format. So we're figuring that out. Next is the 13th Age Bundle of Hol- or Humble Bundle. There is a Humble Bundle going on for 13th Age right now. For tw- You get 28 products, which includes, m- I think, all of the major 13th Age source books for $18. If you've ever been interested in 13th Age, this is definitely the way to get involved. I love 13th Age. I am a huge fan of this role-playing game. It is probably the D&D I would be playing if I wasn't playing 5th Edition. It is a really, really solid game. And I always recommend it for anybody who really like the high power nature of fourth edition this version really hits that high power note it is an excellent uh an excellent book and you get tons of the books like tons of things that are involved in 13th age eyes of the stone thieves is an awesome adventure big piles of multiple monster books multiple adventures multiple character options tons of different things that you get for 18 bucks it is definitely worth it you can find a link down to pick that up in the show notes below if you do not have 13th age and you are interested at all This is definitely how you want to do it. Ruthlessly efficient. Let's talk about the D&D 2023 Summit. First of all, down in the show notes below, you will find links to many different articles and many different write-ups of the notes from the people who actually went to the event. If you are really interested in what actually happened at the event, you want to learn what happened at the event in a you know blow-by-blow, question-by-question nature, there are multiple people who have done so. N-World did it. Daniel Kwan did it. There's, de- there's, there's a whole bunch of different ones. You can find the links to all of those down in the show notes below. So I'm going to be summarizing. I'm going to be talking about my opinions but if you want to read other people who and and the, the views that they got and what questions occurred you can find all of those down in the show notes below that's number one lots and lots of notes from people that are that have taken i'm going to get into that so when i'm talking about it here today and this is something that i was i had in my mind when i was there it's something i've been thinking a lot about over the week since something i've been talking a lot with my friends who have gone my friends who haven't gone other people that i've known that have gone is what value did we get out of this that can help DMs and GMs, because that's my charge, right? My charge is helping you run better RPGs. And I want to know what did I learn from this that I can pass along that that can help you run better RPGs. And I'll be honest, some people are like, whoa, I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. And I'm like, well, that's pretty bad. If after 10 hours, we don't have something to say. So I have three big takeaways that I came to. And these are, again, from discussions I had. These aren't what other people have said. They're, they're my own recommendations. But I got them by thinking a lot about what other people said as well. And some of these I'm going to dive into much deeper than, than just the surface level thing. Number one, 
I feel very confident that the 2024 revisions of the fifth edition look really good. I am happy with the direction that they're taking. I like what they were saying. I like the strategy that they're taking. There was after about an hour to 90 minute discussion with the design team, which is Chris Perkins and Jeremy Crawford talking about what their goals are with the 2024 revision, which is what they're calling it. We'll get into like one D&D isn't what you think it is. I like what I'm seeing. Is it perfect? No, none of all of us in our head have what we think the ideal version of this game is. And I guarantee it. My version of this game isn't your version of this game. My ideal isn't your ideal ideal you know so none of us are going to get exactly what we want but i really like what i'm seeing and, and I, I i definitely feel like it's going to be an improvement over what we have with the 2014 version that doesn't mean some people won't say you know what i like the 2014 version better and i'd like to play that so you're always going to have that but i think it looks really strong i was very happy with that that's that's number one number two wizards of the coast is definitely eager to add a marketplace to D&D Beyond for other 5th edition publishers to be able to publish stuff there. And they would like to do so for the VTT. But doing so is largely a about development resources, not about policy. It's not that they're not interested in doing it. It's that it's going to be hard to implement that given the current code base and given everything they have and given all of the work that they have to do and all the things that they're going to be doing to get 2024 version of D&D in there. It's going to be really hard, so I wouldn't hold your breath that we're going to have it anytime soon. Whether you want it or not, I have talked about that. And I will say that, like Dan Rawson, who is the vice president over D&D, he gave what I refer to as a mighty yawp when people were saying we would like to have third, what they refer to as third-party publishers publishing on D&D Beyond, what I refer to as other fifth edition publishers publishing to D&D Beyond. He was like, woohoo, yes, we want to do that. So they're definitely interested in doing that. I'm not saying whether that's good or bad. I'm just saying they're definitely interested in doing that. Number three. So much talk about the VTT in that seminar, in, in the in the in the summit, and outside of the summit, and the preview we got last week, and so many people talking about what it's going to mean for everybody. Uh, the answer is. It's, it's so far away. It's more than two years before we're going to see this thing in mass. It's going to be more than a year before there's even really any kind of beta testing of it. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about it one way or the other. I wouldn't, you know, you can pontificate about what kind of effect it's going to have on DD. I really don't think it's going to have nearly as big an effect as DD Beyond does, right? I don't, I don't think it's going to be that big a deal. I think it's going to be another VTT and we'll see, right? But I, the main thing is it's so far away. I wouldn't even worry about it. Those are my big three takeaways. If you if if you came up to me in the street and said, Mike, I know you went to the D&D summit and I went virtually, by the way, you went to the virtual D&D summit. What did you learn that really matters to me, a fellow DM? I would say 2024 revisions look really good. D&D Beyond is probably going to have a marketplace in there sometime, but we don't know when. And don't worry about the VTT. Those would be my three big points. So now what about the summit itself? Uh, and, and I know that this doesn't really affect DMs as much. So I'm going to try to I'm gonna move past this so we can get into some of the juicier bits. Number one is if you are sad and jealous that you didn't attend, if you're a content creator who's like, hey, I create a lot of content and I wasn't invited to this. And that kind of is a slight, holy cow, don't worry about it. Because I honestly, after I went, I wish I hadn't been. And the reason why is everything that I learned there and any impact that I might have had there. I, first of all, I, I, had, I didn't really have any impact being there. And everything that I learned that took me 10 hours of my time on Monday to learn, which is a frustrating experience. So lots of people talked about the frustration. I could have learned the very next day reading it on the front page of N-World other people that were actually there in person were laughing and saying, this could have been an email. So 
a lot of the stuff that they presented, they could have just put YouTube videos up. They could have written D&D Beyond articles. They, it was already an open event, which meant they weren't showing us anything that they weren't willing for us to be able to talk about. There was no NDAs signed or anything like that. They weren't bringing us in. It was a focus group. They weren't really. My feeling is for most of the attendees that were certainly that were there virtually. There's definitely maybe a been bigger impact on receiving feedback from members of the community who were there that the impact is pretty low. And if the impact is low on one way, everything else is just receiving information and you can just read an article and get it. So I wouldn't worry about it. There was definitely a huge mismatch in the expectations of what many of the attendees were expecting when they got there and what wizards wanted to talk about. And I didn't, I, I knew so little that the very first question I asked Dixon, who was a wonderful you know, a wonderful community relations guy that helped us out significantly. And he had, we, when we first went in, we, I, it was me and about 10 other folks that were able to just talk to Dixon about what was going on. And my first question was, why are we, basically, why are we here? What does Wizards hope to accomplish with this seminar? And his answer was to listen. And then I was like, okay, well, then why are we having PowerPoint presentations for D&D Beyond and the VTT? That's not listening. I'm like, my ability, any, the, you had 130 people there that are very fired up and they're very interested in, in being able to give their feedback to Wizards of the Coast, ask questions, get answers and provide feedback directly to Wizards of the Coast. And that's a lot of people. And, you know, many, I bet you half of them didn't get any questions answered at all. So why are they there if they're not a, if they don't have an opportunity to answer questions? And the answer is because it's really hard to run an event with that many people and give everybody a chance to speak. But then maybe that venue isn't the way to get that kind of feedback. But there was a big mismatch in expectations. Wizards clearly wanted to talk about D&D Beyond and the VTT and the rules updates. Those were the three big things that they were planning to present at this, at this event. Many of the attendees, and this came up in, in many of the Q&As, like the Q&As were dominated by these topics, that many of them were very interested in Wizards' relations with the community, Wizards' support to creators, and Wizards' drive for better diversity and inclusion of marginalized employees, creators, and players. This came up all the time and 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 into a good conversation my my point is that like wizards wasn't ready to have those conversations they had to add a whole other section to the agenda to address these concerns when it was the primary reason many people were there both virtually and physically was to cover topics like this the relationship between wizards and the community the relation how wizards is improving its both its representation of marginalized people in the game but also how it's bringing more voices of marginalized people to have an effect on the game that is a huge topic it's one that comes up often and it's one that many people there wanted to talk about and they weren't ready to talk about it at all. You could see a very stark difference in the response from the community relations team at Wizards who understood these questions, understood the people, knew the people who were asking them, understood what was going on and the executive team who was totally caught flat-footed. And in one, in one case, like the community relations guy, grabbing the microphone from a vice president and giving the actual answer that the person was asking for when the vice president was not responding. So you know, it was definitely a big mismatch in expectations. And I brought this up, but I really think like everything that we learned could have been a series of YouTube videos and D&D Beyond articles that published to everybody. There was no point in having a separate summit to talk about the things and share the surprises. It would have been far better if, I mean, I, I think, I don't know, just my opinion. It would have been far better if everything was just like, we want to talk, here are the topics that we want to focus on. Having a moderator, a clear moderator who talks about it and focus on getting the feedback and not worry about giving the information because the information you can just give to everybody, especially if it's not under an NDA. 
So yeah, so those are some of my event thoughts. The three things that I would recommend they do in the future. Again, this doesn't really help DMs. It's not really helping you guys. I apologize. But in the, in the, in the, if, if, if anybody from Wizards happens to be listening to this, these are the three things I would do. I plan to give them this feedback some other way if I, if I have the opportunity. One, you should not be running both virtual and physical events at the same time. Run the virtual event separately. Run it first so that the people who are going to the virtual event don't feel the FOMO of all of the people who went physically. If the virtual people get to talk to all the folks from Wizards of the Coast first, then they get that advantage where the people going there physically have the advantage of being there in person and also having tons of money thrown their way for flights and food and tchotchkes and everything else. So run them as separate events and run the virtual one first. Second, work with your attendees to set up the agenda. Don't expect that everybody wants to hear about the VTT when what they want to really hear about is how is Wizards getting more marginalized people in the executive chain? Like have different maybe even different paths have say, okay, we know we have a group of people who are very interested in this. So we're going to have a meeting just for that with those people to talk about that. And we have these people over here who want to talk about this. They're going to talk about that in this, you know, trying to do everything in one group was probably a mistake. So set up, maybe set up different tracks, but certainly work with your audience on the agenda. Now, one thing Wizards of the Coast, and they said this in their Wizards had a, uh, they posted a thing on D&D Beyond to talk about this. And they said like, look, one issue is we did this really fast. We thought that speed was more important than getting it perfect. And I agree with that. And I, I understand that. Like from the time we got the invitation that the event was occurring to the time it occurred was like less than a month. And you can't plan an event this big with flying in. They flew in like 30 people and they had to put them up on hotels and get them food and make sure they know where the bathrooms are. There's like, a, that's really hard. And so I'm not saying you guys totally screwed up and how dare you, right? It was a mess. We all know it was a mess, but I understand why it was a mess. And it was a mess because it's really hard to coordinate an event like that. However, we were asked ahead of time, what are the things you want to talk about in this? I am guessing a lot of the people who brought up those questions mentioned that in their notes, and it doesn't seem like that made its way into the process at all. So work with them early. I mean, they could have asked us right away, what are the things you want to hear about? They, could, they, they waited till like two days before to ask that. That should have been the very first question. What do you want to hear about? And then make sure that you're doing that. Number three, have a clear and consistent way to handle questions and feedback. When you have 120 people who are really, really eager to ask questions, you better have a solid, clear, consistent, fair way for people to submit those questions and have them answered. There were a lot of questions that didn't relate to anything that anyone else cared about. There were a lot of self-serving questions. There were some questions that were very long that were clearly just intended as zingers, like, ha, I'm just going to poke wizards in the eye in public in front of all these people and, and aren't, I, aren't I cool? There were lots of stuff like that. And there were not lots of stuff, but there were times like that. And you think that could have been a different question. And that could have been a question that many people wanted to hear about. So I don't know whether it's submit questions ahead of time. I don't know whether it's making sure that it's a smaller group so everybody has a chance to talk. I don't know what it is, but have a better way to handle the moderation of questions. That would have made a much better event. All right. So now, so that's really about the event itself. Probably the news that is going to interest people the most is the talk about the rules updates. So I wrote a big long thing of news. Patrons get access to the whole, my, my whole list of, of, of stuff that I talked about, but I am going to talk about a few of the things here. I'm going to dive in and up the notes. I want to, I want to focus on kind of most interesting stuff to least interesting stuff while I'm, while I'm going through this. They were talking about the PHB. They had a little bit of time to talk about the Dungeon Master's Guide and the Monster Manual. They did talk about the design goals for 1D&D. Now, the funny thing is this isn't for 1D&D. And something that Jeremy mentioned is 
there's been a misconception about what 1 D&D is. 1 D&D isn't the new version of the updates that are coming out. 1 D&D was three activities happening at the same time. Activity number one was the integration of D&D Beyond into Wizards of the Coast because of the acquisition. Number two was the virtual tabletop being developed. And number three was the rules update. But when asked that, that when we say, well, what is this new version of D&D called? The answer is fifth edition that this is just an update to fifth edition rules it is not even a 0.5 release that's what they say the argument is like it's got to be something it's new books so we got to call it something this is one where i feel like a brand manager must be scratching their eyeballs out because you want to name it something i get that it's not a full new version of the game i get that backward compatibility is really important but you're still it's a new set of books. Like it's these books over here and these books over here. So I'm calling them the 2024 update. Like if you want my name for it that I'm just going to use for the time being, it's the 2024 update to fifth edition and the 2014 books. So I'm the 2014 books are the original player's handbook, monster manual and dungeon master's guide. The 2024 update are the new monster manual player's handbook and dungeon master's guide. That's what I'm going to refer to it. 2024 update. So their design goals were make it easier to navigate, that you can read through the books, that there's new stuff in there that you actually want, that, that they have fixed up the things that over 10 years they've learned aren't working well, that they I, I don't think, uh, improve the quality of the play, improve the quality of the art. They, they've talked a lot about how the art's going to be really awesome. Ensure that fans' voices are heard. Listen to people through the surveys and everything else, and then through the surveys, make sure that the new version of D&D, the 2024 update to D&D, is even more strong. And continue 5th edition. It's not a new version. And, and I'll get into some areas where I'm like, I actually feel I more than any of my friends that I talk to about this, other designers, other publishers, other people who are making lots of fifth, fifth edition stuff, really, really smart people, people that have been involved in, in this industry for decades. And I'm talking to them about it. And I am, I think, by far the most positive about backward compatibility of all of them, which probably means I'm wrong, but I'm, I don't feel like I'm wrong yet. I don't feel I don't I'm not seeing evidence that I'm wrong yet. And I'll give an, a, one specific example of where I feel like the backward compatibility is really interesting. So in the player's handbook, they're going to start by teaching you how to play the game before you do character creation. So when you pick up your player's handbook and you start reading through it, instead of going right into character creation, it's going to talk about what it means to play the game. They get the idea. I really feel like the 2014 version of D&D was expecting that you had already played D&D when you picked up the books, which is why the Dungeon Master's Guide doesn't give you really good advice. It's why the player's handbook is like right into how to make a character that I really feel like it was considered, hey, we want to make a new version of the game that is sort of the standalone version of what D&D is for people who have played D&D. They didn't realize, because remember, the five times growth of D&D didn't happen until after those books were published. Now they're seeing that growth. Now they recognize these books need to teach people how to play D&D. So there's a much bigger focus on that. Lots of support for making characters quickly. The big question is, does that come at a cost of like things like feats at first level? But they have some talks about that. Very robust index and glossary in place in the player handbook itself, but in, across all three books. I've mentioned the fact that one DD isn't a thing it's not meant to be a new edition chris perkins talked about some new stuff in the dmg one of them is a glossary of DD lore that in the dmg there's going to be a glossary of D&D. who is loth who is orcus you know all of these different terms of regions and locations and npcs and villains and stuff that sort of permeates the lore of DD across all worlds there's going to be a glossary for that in the Dungeon Master's Guide. So if you're looking up a term and you don't know what it means, you can flip open and you can find it. So that's really cool. What are the demon web pits? All these old legacy places and what Chris Perkins, he's mentioned this before. The problem is people Google them and then they get to like a wiki and the, the, the information's wrong. And he hates it because like people are getting information that's just plain 
There's new game options in the player's handbook, new monsters. They said 400 monsters in the monster manual. So there's new monsters and lots of new options in the DMG. So they're really trying to say like, hey, these books have a lot of stuff. Even if you like the old version, you're going to want them. There are The next Unearthed Arcana is going to have six remaining classes, including some things that are brand new. They plan to fix up the stuff they've seen over the past nine years. There's all new art. They're going through all the survey. They actually pointed out to the human beings that that guy back there is the one who is going through the actual text of the surveys to see what people are saying. So they actually are reading the surveys. They're very, that was something that came up during the whole OGL thing when it was like, oh, it turns out they don't read the surveys. And really, apparently what happened is like somebody who was hired on at D&D Beyond said they're not, they can't be reading those surveys, not whether or not they are or aren't. But apparently they said, no, that guy right back there is doing it. There was a, a person who was nodding their head saying, I do it. And they recognize that there's a bunch of new people that are coming to D&D through fifth edition more so than any other edition of D&D. So what do they want and what do they need? They want a game that was more inclusive than the one that was brought up in 2014. Again, it's not sixth edition or fifth edition that they also recognize that like this is when everybody's trying. And I see this all the time again with my, many of my friends who've been in this industry for decades. We talk about it. They're always trying to wrap a previous metaphor. Oh, and I do it. I'm like, oh, this is like D&D essentials with fourth edition, or this is like the difference between third and three for five. Or this is like when second edition got the complete fighter book. Everyone wants a past metaphor to hang on to, to tell them about what the current metaphor, the current situation is. And the reality is it's a totally different situation than what's occurred previously, that they're trying to, to update fifth edition in place. And that is, you know, th this is something that's not really been done before. Revising the game in place with new core books is something that's never really been done before. And Jeremy had a lot of stuff to talk about with that, with like the difference between 3.5 and 3.0. You couldn't, you really had to buy new books for 3.5. They were, it was not the same game. It was, things were not backward compatible in the same way, but they want the 2024 revision to be compatible. And he said, so he brought up some specific stuff. You should, and, and, and this is, I don't think a big surprise. And everybody go, yeah, of course we expected that is that you could pick up Journey from the Radiant Citadel and even new books that they're publishing this year and use them with the new books in the current year. They're not doing like what they did with fourth, certainly where they basically took two years and didn't publish any books. They're still publishing books with crunchy bits in them that they expect will work with the new version. So they, they believe it enough that their own books are coming out this year that they want to ensure are not obsolete when they put out the new the new 2024 books next year. They said that, that, that Xanathar's and Tasha's are a special case. That Xanathar's, many of the rule sets that worked well in Xanathar's and Tasha's are going to make their way into the core books. Some of the subclasses may make their way from Tasha's and Xanathar's into the core books. Hopefully not Twilight Cleric. And they... So and then what, they, what they're planning to do is then take the material from Tasha's and Xanathar's that hasn't been put into the core books, freshen it up with, with, with the recognition that there's a new 24 and put out a new book that has that material in it. So that one, they are going to be updating Tasha's and Xanathar's to a new single book, I guess a little bit like Monsters of the Multiverse did with Morden Kanan's and Volos. So a similar way only instead of Monsters is character options. So that, that's kind of interesting. It's still fifth edition is just 10 years older now. There are terms that are going to change, but one of the things that they're is they are, the book itself is going to tell you how to do those conversions. So if you have to change anything from previous fifth edition stuff, it's not like they're going to stick a PDF up on the wizard's website, which they have done for other times that tell you what the conversion is. The books themselves are going to tell you what you need to do with legacy stuff to get it to work with the new books. Subclasses are the example. Subclasses to me are the biggest example of where compatibility, where compatibility can be a question. We're going to talk more about that, but that idea is all of the books 
Well, all of the new books will have the descriptions of what you need to do to convert any old book to the new book format, which is mostly a change in term or mostly like shifting something of one level or something like that. But they will all have the conversions in them so that, you know, you, you don't need a separate document for that. I talked about Tasha's and Xanathar's. There's going to be big books, 32 to 64 pages bigger than the current books. These are going to be great big because the other ones are 300 pages. 12 classes, 48 subclasses, nine species, art for all the backgrounds. The backgrounds are more of a place than a job. So they're gonna, all the art for the backgrounds are going to show you a location. The intent is to help new players understand what it means to have picked that background. So if you're going to do it, Jeremy loves the new art. There's like a you know, bard exploration. They're trying to explore the landscape of being a bard. They're going to have a college of dance that I guess is going to be in it. Wizards and clerics are going to have four subclasses. So they have fewer subclasses in these books in order for the other classes to have more subclasses. And, they, and this is what he brought up. He said, if you are if there's a subclass in the 2014 book that you wish was in this book, you can still use that subclass with the 2024 books. If there's a wizard subclass you think that you really liked or a cleric subclass that you really liked, his claim is that you'll be able to take the 2020, the 2014 version of that subclass and use it with the 2024 class. That is better backward compatible than anything else I've seen in, in other previous editions. That's where I go and say like, ah, oh, it feels like essentials where everything can mix and match. So it was more than just you can play a, a, a class on one side that's 2014 and a class on another side that's 2024 and play them in the same game. We, I, I kind of good that you could do that. But the idea that a 2024 class can pick a subclass from the 2014 books that means that it's pretty compatible. It means their intention is pretty compatible. It's not out yet. We'll have to see. But that feels that feels like it could work. They talked a lot about monks. I'm not going to talk too much about monks, but they did say that they're moving away from key, which is clearly like Asian focused and specifically a Japanese focused idea and moving to spirit points. They're probably going to try out different terms. But the idea was like, it shouldn't, you know, this whole idea that the monk is exotic and the monk is a, the only like non-European you know, sort of class is problematic in all many ways. And, and they're going to, they're going to take a hard look at that. There was, at, at, you know, definitely lots of, lots of discussion about better inclusion of, of different, how people are represented in the games obviously took place throughout all these conversations. Species. So they have human, elf, dwarf, orc, taf, tafling, tiefling, dragonborn, goliath, halfling, and gnome. People really like the goliath enough that they made the goliath a, a direct class and they're getting rid of all of the half races. So there is no half elf. There's no half orc. They're, they're removing all the half stuff, but instead because of the mix of species and background, you can get a lot of the stuff that you would have gotten if you were picking one of these sort of races that where you were born to one, one species, but you lived with another or anything like that. Lots of custom options to handle that sort of thing. We've already seen that in some of their playtest documents. Feats, the whole idea of feats are first level. The intent was that feats are such a cool part of the game for many people that not having people get involved with that early and not showing new players what that's like can be a problem. So the idea is they want to give simple feats at first level so that you can just, if it can be, it's part of your background. So again, character creation is really fast. You pick your background and it automatically comes with a feat and that the starter feats are very simple so that you're not getting thrown into the deep end, but it shows you the taste of what you can get when you get to later levels. All right, fair enough. I, I, you know, I don't know. Do I have an opinion on it? Y yeah, but my, I think my opinion is well superseded at this point where I think feats are first levels adding a complication and it does add like a min maxi thing that like right from the very good go. I'm not a big fan. I wish it was an optional rule, but nobody's listening to me. And now two different systems are doing it that way. Tales of the Valiant by Cobalt Press is going to do it that way, which is going to be a very big 5e system and 1D and D or not 1D, whoa, the, 20, the 2024 books are doing it. So weapons, they talked a lot about weapons. If you've been paying attention at all, you might've heard about this, that there's this idea of weapon mastery. 
And weapon mastery is essentially when you are proficient with a weapon, when you're a particular class that's proficient with a particular weapon type, that weapon does a new thing that's different just for you. The example is it can you can hit somebody and their movement speed is halved. You can nick them with something and that gives you advantage on your next attack. You can hit them and push them. You can, I don't, I forget what puncture does. I don't remember what all these do. Maybe I have some things. But the point is, for all the people who wanted more interesting stuff to do as a melee class, the weapon tables with the mastery is almost like a way of having a feat tied to the weapon you're holding that gives you this other thing. You remember those weapon mastery feats we saw, I think, in like Tasha's, where it was like you could, if you fought with a particular type of weapon and took this feat, you could do this. Instead of having to instead of having to waste a whole feat slot for that, it's built into your classes. So the idea here is wizards don't get this because they're not going to be proficient with a, with a weapon type, but a rogue does. A, a dagger in the hand of a rogue has a new interesting feature that it wouldn't have in the hands of a wizard. Really cool stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm eager to see this. I like it a lot. It definitely gives weapons more to do. It's a complication, but I think it's a cool one, and it definitely has addressed something that I've seen a big complaint, which is that melee people don't really get to do much. So lots of lots of really interesting stuff cleave does what you think it does flex is interesting if you fight with a flex weapon like a long sword it means that when when that weapon is in your hand you can treat it as though you're holding it with two hands only you're holding it with one hand so you know a versatile flex weapon if you're tr mastery in it you can do one hand what other people can do too you know neat stuff and fits in story like guys who are fighting with two battle axes for example you don't have to take a whole feat for, for everything like that. Graze, I think, does extra, does automatic damage even if you miss. So, and then there's fun combos. If you have a weapon with puncture and you hit, then you have advantage on your next roll so that rogues can do things like sneak attack. I, I think one of them means that, so one thing that they took away, if you recall, in one of the play tests, offhand weapon attacks no longer took up a bonus action. They said that takes, that's too good. So instead, they're tying it to one of these so that certain classes with certain weapon types can take a offhand attack that doesn't use a bonus action, particularly like a rogue, can take a, an offhand weapon attack that doesn't require a bonus action, where with everybody else it does. So there was tons of stuff that came across. I'm not going to, I'm not even covering all of it. Again, I've got links to show notes where you can look through many different people who wrote up their notes from it to see the kind of things that interest you. There was so much information I'm not going to be able to cover it all, but I do want to highlight a few more things. So talking more about the fight, about the whole mastery idea with weapons, one of the cool bits is that fighters not only get mastery, they can actually take the mastery feature of one item and apply it to another. So they could move like the one from a glaive to a sword. Fighters, at particularly at higher levels, can do a whole lot of crazy things with their mastery that thinks that's cool so that whole idea of weapon mastery i think is a really a really neat a really neat idea i'm eager to i'm eager to see it so somebody brought up a question which was hey how are you affecting balance and power creep and especially with things that have gone out like the chronergy wizard the peace and twilight domain clerics eloquence spirit bards and these other things that they corrected the hate z issues not just in the problematic content with hate z but also in like the movement exploit but then they're not fixing these other things again like you know, silvery barbs. There are whole like videos about how silvery barbs are breaking people's games. And they said, well, we, we definitely want to address things when they come up and they, they really change the game for, then they really hurt it. But sometimes these unexpected big surprises are really fun and we don't want to hurt that. It, we don't want to smooth the game out so much that everything is just boring and normal, that they really want to have uh, that they really want to, you know, have sort of the spiky bits. And I, I agree with the idea of spiky fireball. Fireball is so good compared to like other spells at its level that sometimes it's really hard to kind of balance around that now. But but they want fireball to be good in that way. 
I still, I don't think they're doing enough. And, and the things that, that this question brought up, the person who brought up this question, these are all things that are game breaking things. Twilight cleric. I, it's the only time I have to ban subclasses. It's mostly Xanathars and I have to ban peace and twilight clerics are so they're disruptive to the game. They're disruptive in a lot of ways. I'm sad that wizards can't see it. Monster manual. Many of the monsters from CR 10 and above are going to be retuned. They said they're going to hit really hard. I think they said the same thing about Monsters of the Multiverse, so we'll see. But I'm hoping that they do. They say that they're going to change their spreadsheet. We will see. We will see what that looks like. We'll see what that path looks like. It's something I'm thinking about a lot because we're doing Forge of Foes and we're building Monster CR and we're looking at it. And I even had a discussion with Scott and Teos and like, should we be beefing up even more? And we're like, ours are already hitting really hard, so we're probably going to keep them where they are. The Dungeon Master's Guide is going to have revised rules for encounter building. That is something that they're going to test in a UA, so we'll see that. They're definitely addressing CR guidelines in the DMG and recognize that they don't even match their own internal tools. And they say, we're going to fix this so the DMG does use our own internal tools, except I'm like, if the internal tools are what are relating or what are giving you things like weak ass Orcus, then maybe your internal tools, what needs the, the, the thing. They said that we have lots of love for our DMs coming up. The monster book, I mentioned 400 monsters, it's going to be 500 monsters. A big question for me is how many of these monsters are going to make their way into an SRD or not? I'm not sure. They say they're going to have new apex monsters for high CR. So instead of just fiends, celestials, and dragons, which are like the primary monsters above a certain challenge rating, they're going to say, what does like a CR 23 ooze look like? So that's kind of neat. They're going to have sort of big versions of other monster types, I guess, like big beasts and things like that. One of the other things that they said they're going to do, I don't know if I have it in my notes here, but is that they're going to have a lot more NPC stat blocks. They recognize how often NPC stat blocks are used in games, that they are the highest, most used stat blocks so they're going to put more of those in i agree wholeheartedly i actually like the level up advanced 5e in the monstrous menagerie has tons of npc stat blocks and i use those a lot so i think npc more npc stat blocks are really great one other thing that chris perkins talked about is the need to help dms really understand how to prep their game I agree. Many people agree. I don't know what it's going to mean for my business, but we'll find out. So one of the things they're going to put in the DMG is a new skeletal adventure structure. This isn't showing them what an what a published adventure looks like, but more like what does an adventure look like when you're preparing it for yourself? Sounds pretty familiar. And I'm really eager to see it. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to see this. This is obviously something I think should be in the DMG anyway. So I'm not bitter at all. I actually think this is really important. But it's very interesting. And I'm very curious to look at what that skeletal adventure structure looks like. I seriously doubt it'll be like mine. So that's cool because that means people will still have a reason to come and take a look at what we're doing with Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. They're going to show more than tell in the DMG. They're going to have an actual sample adventure content, a, a you know, style of adventure writing that DMs can be walked through for their home games. And examples of how to do that and, and the same thing with campaigns the 2014 dmg doesn't show you what a campaign looks like the 2024 dmg will so that's really interesting they talked about how they're going to have a pricing structure for magic items that they want to give more things for characters to spend money on they know that that's been an issue since 2014 they're going to have a new bastion system which is about like how you can spend your money to build up your headquarters the idea that that's baked into the GMG, I think, is going to be really good. So one of the things in general that they want to do is say, we want the DMG to be a book that you will bring to the table with you. We want it to be a useful book that you'll bring to the table, that it's not just magic items, which is pretty much what people have said, that the DMG is basically just used for magic. One thing is that they say that they're not going to ever move the challenge rating of a monster around. So if they're redoing the Balor, the Balor is going to have the same challenge rating in the, in the 2024 update that it does in 2014. So there's never a circumstance where like you look at the Assassin and the Assassin's challenge rating changed any monster that has the same name is going to have the same challenge rating even if it's mechanics change to better support that challenge rating same with spells you're not going to see a spell move one level or another that's the spells will still be if anytime they they have a spell that they're updating that's in the new book it will be the same level as the spell of a previous book
They said that as far as like, are we going to get rid of the 2014 books on D&D Beyond? They said, no, they will stay there. They'll probably be marked as legacy, but you bought them, you will be able to keep them. And then somebody else said, well, if this is just an update, if this isn't a new version, aren't you just going to update those books? And they said, no, you're going to have to buy them. These are all new books. They're not going to be free just because you own the 2014 book. It's like, that means they're new books and you should probably name them. So I thought that was a pretty funny, a pretty funny thing. All the mechanical changes. So this is something that Kyle said specifically. I asked the question and he answered it before I brought it up. He said, all of the mechanical changes that they're making are going to make their way into a new or updated SRD. So he's now said this multiple times. We have heard this multiple times. So I sure hope Kyle doesn't go anywhere before that actually happens, because I really want it. The only question I asked of any consequence that actually got answered was this, and it was the answer, the question about Planescape. So I'm gonna bring it up right now, which is, what is Planescape? Is it a book? Is it a box set? Is it an adventure? Is it a campaign? And Chris Perkins grabbed the microphone and said, it is a 96 page gazetteer of sig sigil, a 96 page adventure and a 64 page bestiary with a DM screen, two versions, an in-store version, an outsourced version. So. That's the A, that's 64 pages bigger than Spelljammer. So I'm happy about that. Of course, we'll have to wait till we see when it comes out, but I'm happier. I would have preferred one book so that they're not constrained to making sure that everything fits into 96 pages, but I'm, I feel far better about it hearing that it's 64 pages bigger, that the, the adventure is going to be a bigger adventure. I don't really need the bigger adventure. I would rather have had a 128 page gazetteer, a 64 page adventure and a 64 page bestiary whatever it's going to be what it is one of the things the dmg is going to bring up is that it's going to have like a sort of a you know hey i'm having a problem in my game what do i do a player bailed how do i how do i deal with that a lot of q a about common problems that dms have that common new dms have are going to be covered in the dmg with questions and answers about what they're going to do so that's all so that's all very good so that was really that's that's the in-depth look at what they discussed about the rule books again i am excited for the new rule books. I, I, I'm, I like, I like what I'm seeing. I like what they're saying and I'm eager. I'm eager to see it. So I mentioned that the second big thing that I think is important for DMs to understand is that they are looking at doing marketplaces for D and D beyond in the virtual tabletop. I've, I, I have this like hypocritical hook in my head where my biggest problem with D and D beyond is that it doesn't include third party products. So I can't use stuff like Cobalt Press's Tome of Heroes alongside the stuff that Wizards of the Coast is publishing. At the same time, I worry that if they're going to allow other fifth edition publishers to publish their material on D and D beyond, is it going to create a bigger monopoly in D and D beyond? I am dancing around this. I, I keep, I keep twisting my head. I think I've had rants on previous shows where I've talked about like, do we really want that? Is are we we you know we we already saw what happens when a game can be too monolithic and and one company can have to try to try to exert too much control over the hobby. Are we worried about that? And I'm worried about it. And but and I always come back to like my real worry is that D&D Beyond is really good and players really like it. So I'm not insulting D&D Beyond. I'm actually saying the opposite. It's too good. It's, you know, if it was more of a pain in the ass to use, more people might be willing to use paper character sheets, but it's really good and people really love it and they don't like using it. So the answer to me is like, it doesn't matter because they're going to do what they're going to do. Even if I said like, I really don't want them to have third party stuff or I really don't want them to have other publishers material in D&D Beyond because I don't want one company to have too much control over it. And I can get more into reason why. It's more that idea that like drive through RPG 
where they're also a big company, Roll20 and DriveThruRPG, great big company, but they're not competing with your product when you put it up there. They're not also a publisher of RPG products that are way bigger than yours. When you post an adventure, if I wrote an adventure and I post that adventure and publish that adventure on the on the D&D Beyond, I am competing with Wizards of the Coast's adventure on the same platform that they control. I'm going to get paid. I'm going to have to pay 30% of the revenue, you know, whatever they're going to charge. Who knows what it is? But let's say it's 30%. Like, let's say they do really well and it's 30%. I have to pay 30% to put my product on there. They don't have to pay 30% because it's their platform. I would probably have to pay for advertisement. They don't have to pay for advertisement. They can always out advertise me. So it's an uncompetitive process. Somebody brought up a really good point, which is that they talked about it like it's the Steam store. And they said, we want to do it like Steam. And somebody else said, isn't Steam going through a big anti-competitive lawsuit right now? And I was like, oh, that's a good point. So I get it. Like I want, part of it is like, I want a really good tool. The reality is I want multiple really good tools. I want three different really good character builders so that I can pick which one I want to use. I worry that with Wizards already having such a strong draw towards D&D Beyond, and then if they allow uh, other 5e publishers to publish their material on D&D Beyond, it becomes the dominant platform. And it's a dominant platform that is owned by the company whose primary revenue is driven by selling the same kind of thing you're selling, only they get a much better platform to sell it on than you do on the same platform. That's what I worry about. But I get it. Like my own hypocritical notion is sort of twisted in this. The good news, either way, well, good news or bad news, either way, it doesn't sound like it's going to happen anytime soon because the, the getting the mechanics and the, the, the system in place to actually be able to do that is going to be really hard. So I'm not too worried about it, but it's definitely something I think a lot about. I think the answer is while we're waiting for this, it would behoove other companies to start really trying to draw in other 5th edition systems, other 5th edition supplements, and building alternatives to D&D Beyond for character building. I would love to see Demiplane do it. I'd love to see other character builders out there. Let's start building more character builders. One thing they said is that D&D Beyond is going to be the future of D&D. That, and, and I mean in the sense of where they're publishing digital stuff. So they're no longer going to be using dnd.wizards.com. I think it was wizards.com slash dnd. Now... My friend Teos brings this up all the time. I talk about it all the time. What happens is they delete all the old stuff. So like Dragon Plus, Dragon Plus was for, they did Dragon Plus magazine for like three years. I wrote articles there. I, many of my friends wrote articles there. Some of my friends were like editors that worked there on this stuff. They, they did a lot of material. When they took it down, they're just gone. They're not anywhere. They're not in an archive. They didn't say they're over here. We're going to keep them over here. We're just not publishing. They disappeared. They were pulled down. Wizards has a really, really bad tendency. There's all of these articles that like Chris Perkins wrote, the DM experience, right? He wrote a whole series of articles, beautiful, wonderful articles. Ray Weninger had a whole bunch of articles, These this whole series of articles. And the only way to get them is on the freaking internet archive. Wizards just deletes them. So if they say they're moving to Dean Beyond, they're just going to delete everything. So if you want anything, go there and save it because it's very unlikely they're going to keep it. And I know Teo's talked to them at the seminar saying, don't do that. They're going to do it anyway. Probably. History shows are going to do it. One of the questions that came up that, again, caught them kind of flat-footed is the whole idea of how D&D works in a global economic environment. And it was a woman who was talking about D&D growth in India, trying to get D&D to grow in India. And she brought up the point that a core... One book, one D&D book is 9% of the annual median salary for somebody living in India. Imagine if you had to pay 9% of your salary to get one D&D book and how different that is. So how do you bring D&D to them? 
how do you how do you expand D&D in this environment where you have this like 10 times hunt and sometimes even bigger massive income disparity between different regions of the world when you're selling a book for 60 bucks or even 70 like what you think those core books are going to be 60 bucks i bet they're 70 bucks really interesting right and that's a good question and i'm i'm kind of fascinated by that answer but it is a billion people live in india more than a billion people right that is a way to expand the game in a way that's never been expanded before how do you do it? Very interesting. People brought up, are you going to still publish books or is everything going to be digital? And they said, we love the speed of publishing to D&D Beyond is really, really nice for things like the Minecraft monsters, for things like the supplements for the movie. That seemed to be a really good, fast, easy way for us to do it. And we like that. But of course, people love their books. We're going to sell books as long as people are buying books. So I wouldn't worry about books disappearing anytime soon. If you're worried about it, I don't, I wouldn't worry. They brought up the fact that they have, they're talking about the D&D and schools program that they did. And they brought up this number, which is staggering. And I'd really like to know more about it. They said that 9.5 million kids went through the in-school D&D programs that they won. How do they measure that? And how do they know? That's fat. 10 million, almost 10 million kids. It makes it sound like 10 million kids play D&D. If you got 10 million kids to play D&D, holy cow, could this hobby explode? That number feels really high to me. Somebody brought up AI. AI is a big question. Everybody's talking about it. You know, what do we do about AI? And this is a direct quote from one of the people who wrote notes that Daniel Kwan actually took this quote. Daniel Kwan was the one who asked the question. And this is the quote that Daniel Kwan got, which was AI, because Kyle brought this up. Kyle, the, the current lead of the D&D design team. It's about as close as you're going to get to a commitment that they're not going to, they're, they're not going to be driving towards an AI model for, for D&D content or D&D DMing or anything like that. AI, in terms of artwork and content we create, is com completely inconsistent with our process. Our process includes humans, involves iterating with humans. We go back and forth with humans. So that's our process and we aren't deviating from that. So you aren't going to see an a you aren't going to see AI being used in our All right. Paizo actually said like they made an official declaration. I wouldn't mind if, if Wizards of the Coast made an official declaration. I don't know. For me, it's, it's a little less. I know a lot of people are really fired up about this topic. I'm kind of like sitting on the sidelines kind of, huh, I wonder what they're going to do. But I wouldn't, again, whatever your fears are, I wouldn't worry about it. Fjordar here in the Twitch chat brings up a good question, which was, uh, he's from, they're, they're from Germany and they don't understand why multilingual stuff is so hard. Translation stuff is really hard in general, they said. And if you think about it, the idea that you have a lot of moving parts on D&D Beyond, you have menu systems, you have drop-down boxes, you have all these areas where it's pulling all of those data and the, and the data are changing as new books and new updates and things are going on. And they'd have to change all of the language for that as well. So they are, they, they said they're really struggling with how to make D&D Beyond a multilingual tool. They don't have any like partners that are able to do it. And I bet you the code is pretty messy. It's old code now. It's been, D&D Beyond's been around for a while. It's old code. I bet you it's pretty messy. And I could get like, it's probably pretty hard to do. Have, and knowing that I have lots of people who are interested in translations of my books and those are just books. Trying to do it with like a system, that's that's really hard. So I yeah, they, they did, that, that question did come up and there wasn't a great answer. Of, of how they're going to be able to solve that other than, yeah, it's really hard. Every month we put up a new Q&A for Sly Flourish patrons for each month. I answer every question that people ask that are related to RPGs there. Some of them I take and put into the show. We're going to take a look. The first one I moved to the top because it was somewhat related with the, with the whole D&D Summit. What is the purpose of the Dungeon Master's Guide and what should it be in the next iteration? Should it be a book that the DM brings to the table? Should it teach DMs, particularly new ones, how to build effective encounters, adventures, and campaigns? Should it contain a starter adventure built from the steps and the tips? So this is a good question. And I changed my philosophy because I don't really worry about what something should be. I try not to worry about what it should be. Maybe I'm totally hypocritical and I totally worry about what it should be. 
But one of the reasons why I'm pretty happy with the 2024 books as I hear them is that I don't have this expectation of you should be doing X, Y, and Z. I really don't know. I'm not in their spot. Lucky me, I don't have to make a DMG that supports millions of people. I can just make what I worry about. So when they put out the DMG, there will probably be stuff in there I love and there'll probably be stuff in there where I go, oh, they missed the mark. And then I get to write a product for the things that missed the mark, which I've been doing as a career now for a little while. So I don't worry too much about what they should do. Because all I'm going to do is get a bit disappointed. Anytime I look at like, well, what should this do? What should the movie be like? What should the Planescape be like? What should these things be like? I'm just, I end up disappointed because the one in my head isn't what what actually comes out. So I tend not to worry about that. Should it contain a starter adventure? I don't know. I've heard arguments about why you should and should not have starter adventures. One is it's wasted pages once you've run it. Robert Schwab had that opinion when he was talking about why he didn't have a starter adventure in Shadow of the Demon Lord. He says, because it'd be a wasted page. I don't know if that would be interesting if he puts it in Shadow of the Weird Wizard or not. Should it teach DMs how to build effective encounters, adventures, and campaigns? You would think so. I would think so. And it sounds like they're going to do that. The nice thing, I put this question at the top because it's related to what we saw with the D&D Summit. And it sounds like they're doing a lot of the things that you're talking about here. So we'll see. You know, the answer to this, right? The Zen monk. We'll see. We'll we'll, we'll see what they do. Chris About Town says, I'm a DM running a villains game and we're having a blast. Players have reached level 11 and will be level 12 soon. Any good tips for running this tier in particular? Game is fairly heavily homebrewed and we have good things going with safety tools to know when what another's boundaries. So that sounds great. In fact, running a villains game where I guess the characters are kind of like the villains and it's high level. What I like is when bigger villains come out. Instead of having them fight and kill good people, which to me always feels weird, why not just have badder people? And an example is you could have like a crusade where a crusaders, like powerful servants of the Celestials are sent to come kill the villain characters, but they're actually even worse. You know, the 13th age has the crusader who's so lawful good, they're evil. I love that idea. I love the idea of like, you know, when you take like the highest mark, the brightest, shiniest star is actually malevolent. They've they've lost themselves. They're so pure of thought, so pure of goodness that they've lost humanity. They've lost the actual sense of helping people and they end up just, you know, worse than even villains. I love that idea. As far as running for this tier, the big things that you, you will often hear are make sure that the threats are bigger than the characters. Make sure that the characters, the threats are against things the characters need to save. People they need to save, places they need to save, items and locations that they need to save. It's not just about more monsters attacking the characters. It's about a bigger scope, a bigger scale. That's a little harder in a villain's game because what does a villain care about other than themselves? But that, you know, that's that's kind of the trick is what what can the villains, if the villain can the villains be building up their empire and the empire is under threat by these other areas and now they have to protect it? That that could be. That's that's always a, a good question. As far as like threat, all of my other advice still applies. More monsters, higher challenge ratings, more damage, more attacks, higher hit points. You know, all of the things that you're going to, to to shake them up with. When you get to these like level 11, level 12, you really have to throw the kitchen sink at, show the, throw the kitchen sink at them. You know, there's a lot, there's a lot that goes on at that level. Friends, I want to thank you all for hanging out with me today while we talked all about the D&D Summit. I hope you enjoyed the show. I hope it was useful to you. I spent 10 hours at the summit and probably 20 more hours over the week talking with other people about it. So I spent a lot of time. I'm hoping that there was value that came out of that time. 
If you enjoyed this show and you want more stuff like this, please subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter. It's absolutely free. You get an adventure generator PDF sent directly to your inbox. Plus every week, a new RPG related article sent directly to your inbox. You can also support me directly on Patreon. Patrons get access to all kinds of exclusive adventures, a dedicated Discord channel, the monthly Q&A, all different kinds of things that patrons get. But most of all, they help me put on shows like this. And you can pick up any of my books at the Sly Flourish bookstore. There's a link down in the show notes below, including Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, the Lazy DMs Workbook, and the Lazy DMs Companion. Thank you all very much. Have a great day and get out there and play an RPG.